So Sharona Sachs is actually the interim section chief and director of clinical services and palliative care at DHMC. And she is also assistant professor of anesthesiology at the Geisel School of Medicine, which was formerly Dartmouth Medical School. She specializes in oncology and palliative medicine, and she's taught undergrads, graduates, professionals, and community members on topics related to palliative care and other issues. And she's written several book chapters on palliative care and pulmonary issues. Amelia Cullinan is um, a physician in the palliative care program at DHMC. She joined the program in 2012. She completed her MD at Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia and her residency in internal medicine at St. Vincent's Hospital in New York and a fellowship in palliative medicine at Mass General and Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. She's trained students, residents, and fellows on a variety of issues related to palliative care and she's won awards for teaching and she is co-investigator on research on supportive care for high-risk patients. And then we also have joining us for this session a standardized patient uh, who's actually playing a family member, Nancy Nesbitt, so we're very grateful to her for participating today. Um, so I will turn it over to you two. Thank you. Thanks very much. Uh, good morning. It's really a pleasure to be here with you and also to share the stage with Amelia, who is um, a wonderful new find in my life, an extraordinarily talented teacher and collaborator and clinician and colleague. So I'm going to at first run through some of the literature and what it reflects about the importance of having uh, goals of care conversations with patients and family members who are confronting a diagnosis of dementia, talk a little bit about the timing of that, and uh, we're going to spend a significant amount of time sort of looking at how to do that. Amelia will have the great fun of engaging with you and thinking with us about some of the issues that arise during the course of that discussion. So let's first look a little bit at the current state and think about how best practice communication might influence the course of patients with dementia and look a little bit at the opportunity cost of not having access to best practice communication and what that actually would look like. Looking at the current state, the numbers are a little bit scary. If you look at just a snapshot of American life, about 14% of dementia patients in skilled nursing facilities have advanced directives, and that compares with up to 65% of all comers. So there is clearly a deficiency in terms of having an articulated, preference-sensitive plan of care for those patients. In a really interesting study that I'm going to refer to many times, Susan Mitchell looked at sort of the landscape of advanced dementia. What does it look like? What's the experience of patients and caregivers? What actually happens biologically? And what are the consequences in terms of patient and caregiver experience? And what she found was that about only 20% of healthcare proxies of patients with advanced directives, uh, with advanced dementia rather, believed that the patient that they cared for had less than six months to live. About 18% of caregivers reported that they had received prognostic information. So there's really a dearth of an understanding of what to expect, and particularly to expect that death is a natural consequence of advanced dementia. Only 29% of the healthcare proxies in this study unequivocally reported that they understood that dementia was a terminal disease. And remember, Dr. Santulli told us that the evidence that dementia is terminal is unequivocal. And it's a really important understanding, as we'll see. So we know that not a lot of people understand 
what dementia looks like, that it unfolds in a terminal way. We know a lot of conversations aren't happening. And the question is, does this prognostic uncertainty have a real consequence? And what I hope to show you is that the data will reflect that it has a dramatic consequence. When caregivers don't understand that dementia is a terminal disease, it is really hard for patients to die comfortably. So let's look at some of the information that informs that. This is again referring to the Susan Mitchell study. And in that study, 96% of healthcare proxies identified that comfort was their primary goal. However, if you looked at the patient experience, 46% of patients experienced dyspnea that was significant enough to be consecutively reported for five days. They experienced pain 39% of the time in the same way, and agitation 54% of the time. 34% of the patients underwent burdensome interventions, sometimes on multiple occasions, including intravenous therapies, percutaneous gastrostomy and artificial nutrition, and hospitalization, and many of these episodes of burdensome treatment occurred within the last three months of life. So it's pretty clear that the goal of comfort is not really being actualized, and that that is intimately associated with, an with a lack of understanding about the natural history of dementia, and that in fact it is okay and permissible to think about withholding certain treatments because someone is at the end of their life regardless of the treatments that are instituted. This is not only true in the US, this is good news, this is also true in Europe, and there have been qualitative studies that really reflect this, suggesting that comfort at the end of life is consistently directly correlated with the caregiver's understanding that dementia is a terminal disease. It is really not correlated with almost anything else, not correlated with information sharing, not correlated with previous relationship, not even correlated with um, whatever disparities there are between an understanding of the patient's preferences and the caregiver's preferences. That is the sole determinant that influences the degree of comfort experienced. So the question really is, and this is where Amelia and you guys are going to help us out, why aren't these conversations happening more often? If we look at all of the groups of stakeholders, clinicians, patients, and caregivers, what are the things that interfere with the natural unfolding of what is a very important therapeutic intervention? So we're going to start with clinician barriers, and that's all of us. So why don't we initiate advanced care planning conversations? Just kind of shout stuff out. Anxiety, resistance, time constraints. What else? Yeah, so the whole giving up hope thing. Are they going to give up hope? Okay. What else? So, the, again, the idea of patient or family resistance. So, our fear that they may react badly to our trying to initiate the conversation, right? Because we're going to talk about the patient and family reluctance to engage, but what we're worried about is a bad reaction from them if we bring it up, right? What else? Fear of getting in trouble with doctors. Okay, so if it's not necessarily your quote unquote role to engage in the conversation, okay? Not being comfortable in the language. 
Okay, so feeling not as skilled with communication in this in this realm, comfort with language, yeah? Right, so again, a fear that you're going to convey something that's going to make them give up hope. Anything else? Yep. Just because you're in the field doesn't mean personally you're comfortable with that. Love it. Our own comfort with talking about death. It's a big one. What else? Again, the, the dynamics of different roles on the healthcare team. Is it your is it your role to bring it up? Anything else that we as clinicians struggle with when initiating or thinking about these conversations? I think um, it's really like communicating to the physicians to, to really get this ball rolling because I don't think they um, I have found anyways in my situation they really don't have any clear criteria of what they're looking for and they don't really have So recognizing the right timing to have these conversations. Let's do one more. Prognostication's tough, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. So when should we talk about it and how can we guide people if we don't have a crystal ball about what the future holds? Okay, so I'm gonna give this back to Sharona and she's gonna address some of these. I always get the spinach of the data, it's just not fair. <laughs> so let's look and see how we did compared to what the literature reflects about what clinician barriers are. So yes, identifying the appropriate population of patients, when is it too early, when is it too late, and what are the opportunities. Identifying the appropriate time of the disease trajectory, well really, are they sick enough and will I be taking away hope and what's it all going to look like and gosh, I don't want to alienate them because I'm going to have to tell them some pretty awful stuff about what's coming. Fear of inducing anxiety, and I think we heard this over here, a sense that you don't want to pile on bad news right around the time of the diagnosis by discussing the worst stuff to come that you're going to have to make decisions about. That just seems, you know, unfair. Um, and certainly potentially threatening in terms of your relationship and in terms of how it's going to feel to be the one imparting in that news and receiving all of that negative emotion. On the flip side, there's also the issue of too late, right? How do I really know when I'm talking about all of these high-stakes choices that this person who is reasonably impaired has capacity and do I really have the time and the expertise to take on the responsibility of making capacity decisions? That feels kind of hard. Understanding the trajectory and the terminal nature of dementia, we've heard today from an expert that it's very clearly a terminal disease, but I don't know that that's really how it's conceived of commonly when people think about it. People tend to think of dying with dementia, but not of dementia. And in fact, Susan Mitchell's study would suggest that a fair number of people really do die of dementia. And a lot of the things that we call the cause of death, pneumonia, um, uh, cachexia, and malnutrition, are actual disease consequences and should be thought about that way clinically and described that way to families in terms of how they really begin to conceive of the disease and its consequences. 
understanding the prognosis. And there is real uncertainty about the prognosis, particularly early in uh, the course of dementia. It unfolds over very uncertain time course. And I think that just as Dr. Centrally sort of reflected, when you're trying to decide when is that flex point where you switch over from aggressive curative intent therapy to more palliative intent therapy and finally to an exclusive focus on comfort, that's a very complex interaction between what is really possible at any stage of disease and what quality target the patient feels they must meet in order to have their life be meaningful. And that's a very complex intersection that's really hard to tease out. But from the clinical perspective, our role really is to describe what's possible. And early on in the course of dementia, different from, say, cancer, it's really hard to prognosticate sort of exactly what this is going to look like stereotypically and the time course over which it's going to play out. And sometimes that paralyzes us in terms of approaching choices that are very difficult for the later stages. Lastly, I think as was referred to many times, we have insufficient training in communication. There are a lot of high-level skills involved here, receiving and reframing a significant amount of difficult and negative emotion, translating a lot of new information to people who are under stress and who don't necessarily want to hear what you need to tell. And finally, engaging in um, the negotiated compromise that is always necessary when people are making what I would call preference-sensitive decisions, decisions where there really isn't a right answer except as individually defined by the person. And that really is a negotiated settlement that requires two pieces of knowledge, a very significantly informed knowledge of the patient's context, preferences, goals, values, and the patient having a very significantly enhanced awareness of what can happen for them so that you can then speak knowledgeably to each other about what's the best compromise between what's desired and what's achievable. And that's not really a model of conversation that we're very frequently trained in. And last, there's this huge time pressure that attends all of our clinical days. And when you think about a conversation that's out of your comfort zone, out of your skill set, that involves nuance, that involves deflecting a whole powder keg of emotion that you don't quite know what it's going to be in advance, but it sure doesn't look good. It's not exactly the box of chocolates that you were hoping for then I think it's pretty easy to kick that can down the road for next time. And so those are all of the issues. Let's look a little bit if there's any information that helps us begin to overcome some of those barriers. So looking at the issue of identifying the appropriate population and the appropriate time, this is just my way of really preaching to the choir and um, talking about the fact that primary prevention really is the best solution to this problem. We are all going to age if we're very lucky. And as we age, our risk of developing dementia is going to incrementally increase. The prevalence of dementia um, doubles every five years, so that if it's 1% at the age of 60, by the time you're kissing 85, your percentage is very significant. So as early as possible, when you're interfacing with people who are aging, and certainly when they come to you exactly around the time of diagnosis of mild cognitive impairment or of dementia, that is the time with some attention and sensitivity to pacing and sequencing to begin to introduce the conversation about what the future might look like, very much giving people a sense that rather than piling on bad news, you're trying to reestablish their sense of control over their uncertain future. And that can actually be therapeutic, and we hope to demonstrate some pieces of that. 
Certainly, if we're looking for another flex point, when people enter long-term care would be a very reasonable hard stop in terms of how a system responds to the lack of articulated advance directive. Because, in fact, up to 49% of long-term care residents in one study of the American culture have dementia. So that at the time of admission might be the earliest opportunity, if it hasn't been done already, that we as a system can begin to address these issues. Let's look next at this issue of the fear of emotion and whether it's based in a reality from the perspective of patients and caregivers report. The incidence of negative emotion, both at the time of diagnosis and in discussing um, preferences for care as the disease advances, is pretty variable. It's not a one-stop shop that everyone flies into denial, that everyone is paralyzed with anxiety, and that everyone rejects the message. It really depends on the emotional state and the expectation of the caregiver and of the patient. So it depends on the stage of disease at which the patient is diagnosed and the expectations of both caregiver and patient, which may be quite different, prior to diagnosis. For example, someone who uh, has been experiencing subtle symptoms for a very long time and is terrified by what they mean can derive significant reassurance from finally having a label and an explanation for what has otherwise been a crazy-making experience. And when you have the signal that they derive comfort from knowledge, that's a very easy way to frame a subsequent discussion. It sounds like just knowing what to expect and being able to take control of it makes you feel a lot better. Have I got something for you. Let's look at the future so that you can define it and I can always be driven by your wishes as we navigate it. For patients for whom the prospect of cognitive loss is terrifying, you need to take a little bit more time, distance the conversation about what the future might look like from the initial diagnosis, but it needs to be done and it can be done in the same therapeutic framework. I know that it's terrifying to think about losing control. Let's think about how we can give it back to you over time. The issue of how you interact with someone who lacks the capacity is a little bit more complex, and we'll touch on that in a second. When you look at what the literature reflects, caregivers and patients often have not only very different emotional responses, but also very different informational needs, and that's true in almost any serious illness. Caregivers want to plan and may want to know a lot about the future. Patients may really not want to know because it's happening to them, and the best reality they're likely to have is the present moment. It's painful to project forward out of that, and they may resist doing it. And the, the take home there really is that at the initial session when you are disclosing the diagnosis, if in fact you're in the position of doing that, you can begin to diagnose what are the emotional responses, what are the informational needs, and make provision to have private access to both the patient and the caregiver so they have the time and space to give you their separate perspectives on what's needed so that you can inform future discussions with that information. And lastly, because of the complexities that I've just described, you really want to pace your discussion. So probably not a good idea to pile on information right around the time of the diagnosis at that same visit. It's overwhelming enough, and not only may it not be received because people are not ready, but they're likely to be on cognitive overload. They've heard nothing past 
that initial shoe dropping. And so anything that you say subsequent to that is not going to have their full attention, and it's not likely to lead to considered uh, and useful or therapeutic um, interaction. It is important, though, both from the perspective of planning and the actual therapeutic imperative of having the information, and also so that you can begin to rescue people from the sense that they have just um, fallen off of a cliff into a landscape of terrifying uncertainty. You want to begin to frame for them what the road forward looks like. You want to telegraph that they're going to have partnership in that road. And you want to give them certain landmarks and certainties because the only thing more terrifying than having a sense that you are going to have progressive cognitive loss uh, is the sense that you, your life is defined now by relentless uncertainty. And although that is a fact of life of both patients and caregivers with dementia, always when you're helping people navigate uncertainty, one of the therapeutic imperatives is to find in that uncertainty the things that we can be certain of and the things that can be landmarks as we navigate that space. Next is the issue of capacity. And how do you really begin to tease that out in this very complicated and heterogeneous population? So there are a couple of issues. It is universally true that decisional capacity is going to decline with disease. It is also true that many times by the time that patients come to our attention for these discussions, they really don't have the capacity to have them. What I hope that we'll all focus on a little bit later is that you cannot make a good decision about what you would want if you don't know what's available and if you don't know what your future is really going to look like. One of the earliest things to go when you lose executive function is the ability to learn new information and to integrate it into problem-solving ability. That's exactly the task that needs to happen to make the best and most effective decisions when you're confronting the advanced care planning that's as nuanced as Dr. Centrally referred to in decision-making as dementia advances. And so that may, not be an that may not be an opportunity that you have. That said, it's not universally true that you don't. So capacity is decision-specific. Someone's capacity to make one decision can vary from their capacity to make a different decision. What you're really looking for is a patient's ability to articulate something about the consequences of their choice and something about the reasons for their choice. And what's been shown in both mild cognitive impairment and in early dementia is patients may not be able to give you the reason base for their choice, but they can almost always early on tell you the emotional basis of their choice in a way that's fleshed out enough to make it a reliable indicator at least of what they're thinking at that moment. Whether or not it's faithful to their long-held values is sometimes in question. The other thing that you're looking for is consistent responses over time. So you want to test whether or not when you ask a similar question, you're getting a similar response on at least two or three occasions, just to get a sense that you're getting a true signal being reflected at you. What's true is that many patients with mild dementia, and although mini mental status exam is a terrible way to look at this, it's one of the gross cuts that clinicians use. Patients with mini mental status exam scores that are somewhere between 17 and 24 can almost always effectively provide a values history that really gives you a clue as to how to guide decision making. What's important to you if you had to choose between this or this, 
representing two poles of values, aggressive care or comfort-oriented care, kinds of examples, what might you choose? There are a number of different ways to conduct a values history. On paper, asking open-ended questions is the right answer when you are engaging with a cognitively intact person. When you're trying to elicit the best and most reliable information from a patient with dementia, constraining choice a little bit more with forced choice questions, would you choose this or that, tends to give you answers that are more faithful to their true understanding of the situation. Abstracting without some guidance is really hard to do. Many patients, even with moderate dementia, can name an effective healthcare proxy and can do that consistently over time. If you want to maximize the chances for engaging someone optimally in decision-making and information sharing, exactly as Dr. Santuli reflected, you have to be careful. So time of day is important. Mornings tend to be best. Time in the med cycle is important. Engaging with someone who is trusted is important. And being patient and allowing the time for slowed cognitive processing to engage is important. And those are all the things that can maximize your best chance to engage a patient directly in decision-making when that opportunity exists. Next, we can look at the issue that really plagues many clinicians and I think is one of the key determinants of um, quality care in dementia and perhaps an opportunity where we can do better is the issue of the uncertain disease trajectory and lack of clarity around the understanding that disease is in fact terminal. So looking again at Susan Mitchell's study, she looked at about 233 patients, I think, who had advanced uh, dementia over an 18-month period, and she just tracked the natural history of the disease, among other things. And she found that 55% of patients with advanced dementia, which was around stage 7 in her study on the global uh, deterioration scale, died. So in fact, it's a disease at late stage that has very high mortality. In another study, 48% of patients who had less severe dementia, moderate to severe dementia, died within 12 months of an acute unplanned hospitalization. So moderate dementia and an acute unplanned hospitalization convey as a constellation a significant risk of dying imminently in that next year. And in their hands, in that study, the median survival was about one year for patients with dementia, compared with about three years for matched controls with similar comorbidities without dementia. Susan Mitchell's study, I think, is also really useful in terms of highlighting um, the natural history of dementia and helping uh, us to understand something about its trajectory and helping patients and caregivers understand something about its natural trajectory and how to address some of these situations. What she looked at were uh, three landmark events in the course of patients with dementia. The development of pneumonia, the development of a febrile episode, or the development of eating problems. So on the y-axis, there is the probability of survival, on the x-axis, there's length of time and days. The top line in each of those graphs is patients with advanced direct, uh, dementia who do not have the illness or the disease. And the bottom line, the higher mortality or the lower likelihood of survival, is patients with advanced dementia who have each of those conditions. Pneumonia on the bottom right, febrile episode on top, and most significantly, 
the development of eating problems, which conveys an extremely high risk of mortality over that 18-month period. And what that really, again, reinforces, exactly as Dr. Santuli said, is that the development of swallowing problems, the development of lack of interest in food and nutrition, is a marker of the disease, so that people with advanced dementia are dying of dementia, and they are not eating. They are not dying because they are not eating. And that's extraordinarily important messaging for families and for caregivers. And it is absolutely embedded in fact. So Amelia is going to now help us think about some of the other stakeholders involved in this complex equation. OK, so we talked about a few of these things in the previous brainstorming session. But why might patients be reluctant? to engage in these conversations. What is scary about it, do you think? burden doesn't just extend to decision making, it's a lot of burden that they're anticipating. Yeah? What else? Lack of control. Yep. So this is a really common theme, right? Lack of control and dementia. Back there? Um, uh, one thing, can you repeat people's responses because it's really hard back there. You bet. But the other is, there's a uh, belief, I think, in many people that you're predicting saying here, the idea of sort of magical thinking. If I don't talk about it, it doesn't exist. And if I do, suddenly it's fully fledged, a big, giant elephant in the room that I've got to contend with. Any other? So that, again, speaks to the idea that we need to carefully titrate the kinds of conversations we have with patients specifically because just the conversation itself could be anxiety provoking if they're not able to manipulate the information we're asking them to. Anybody else? Yeah? So just by bringing up the idea of advanced care planning, it almost, um, the patient might be wondering, well, what does that mean? Is something happening right now? Are you bringing this up because I'm dying right now? Or are you going to be rationing my care? Are you going to take things away from me by my talking about this? Other thoughts? partner or whoever's gone and, and it's my duty to carry on no matter what. 
Absolutely. Those are, and those are a lot of the things we'll talk about when we get to caregiver burdens. Absolutely. And uh, Jen? Jen, let me have you just say that one more time because I, I missed part of it too. So we need to be knowledgeable both about the best information we have about trajectory, but also is this actually what's going on because dementia isn't something we have a blood test for or a clear CAT scan that will tell us, oh yeah, that's definitely what's going on. So I'm conscious of the fact that we've got a lot more to get to in this hour, so I'm going to turn back to Sharona and we'll go on with a little bit more. So because we're inherent test takers, let's see how we did in terms of matching up with what the literature reflects. So yeah, fear of engaging in a discussion of anticipated future debility. I don't want to go there now. I don't want to go there at all, but I certainly don't want to go there early. Right? I don't want to think about that. It's scary. Probably, as we all reflected, the, the greatest proportion of negative feeling and terror um, resides in that whole issue of loss of control. And for some people, in fact, although um, our best hope is to frame advanced care planning as a means of maintaining control, if it's not couched correctly, or if they are so consumed by this anxiety, the advanced directive itself becomes a focus of mistrust. How do I know, first of all, that I can accurately really predict what I would do in some future hypothetical situation? Maybe I'll like it better once I get there. How do I know? Right? And that's actually realistic. It's one of the um, difficulties in having a very linear interpretation of advanced care planning. People have untold uh, resources in terms of their resilience. I wouldn't choose an amputation, but now that I'm here, let me look around and see what I can make of it. And I think people have that sense that they don't want to be too um, prescribed by future planning. In the same way, I think, as came up over here, mistrust of the system with uh, a little bit overlay of, of death panel anxiety. But certainly, how do I know that if I articulate a wish, people are really going to understand the context and the conditional logic that I'm using to arrive at that conclusion and apply my wish directly? And so I think there really has to be a lot of reassurance around the very robust role of surrogate decision maker and the more important um, distinction of here's what you're saying you want. I get that in terms of the big ticket items of resuscitation and mechanical ventilation and the stuff that a system cares about and that we hope to spare you from if they're not beneficial. But more importantly, let's talk about the context statements. What are your target quality of life points? What level of cognitive decline do you think you could tolerate? What have you enjoyed before? So if you can't answer that question, maybe I can help you answer it. What are the physical limitations and the physical dependencies that you could comfortably live with? Let's walk through some of those. And let's begin to flesh out sort of the frame of quality of life that I can then guide you, if possible, or your surrogate decision maker through as we begin to approach those edges. Denial of the disease or its consequences. And I think the one thing I would say about denial, and, and I think a thing that is true of most of the communication work that we do in palliative care, when you encounter resistance, it's a really bad idea to upfront dig in in opposition to it. No, it won't happen. Yes, it will. Not a lot of percentage. 
<laughs> in that approach. And so I think when people are in denial, it's important to really understand and diagnose, if you will, exactly the things that are creating that terror, which then become the levers that can help you lead them from that terror to a safer place where they can actually engage in a way that helps them protect their future rather than put it at risk, which is their greatest fear. And again, as we talked about, the thing that is immutable, except by a system response to um, having these conversations earlier and earlier in health, people have variable capacity at the time they're diagnosed, and that window may have closed by the time that they come into your hands. And now, let's engage Amelia one last time to think with us about what the last component and probably the most important component of the system has to say. What are the barriers to caregivers? We've already heard some of them, and I think it's, it's hard to think about these barriers just in separate buckets, so you guys have already elicited some of this, but in the interest of time, let's do three quick barriers that you guys can think of, reasons why caregivers or surrogate decision makers might not want to engage in these conversations. Okay, so we heard about guilt. Yeah, absolutely. Guilt about what? Worry about that you might make the wrong decision on behalf of someone else. It's a big burden to wear on your shoulders. Yep. They don't think they should or could. Um, many healthcare consumers today are pretty sophisticated in the question, but there's still a large percentage of people out there who believe whatever the provider or physician says is what they should do. And there's still a lot of people who believe that. So those people, they will look So that you might have a, a decision maker who's fairly passive in the face of um, physician or clinician input, that they won't speak up on behalf of their loved one in the way that they should. Okay, so let's hear from Sharona. So let's see how we did. Yeah, we are really good at this clinical stuff. <laughs> so for caregivers, very similar to patients, fearing facing the future, fear of inducing anxiety or depression in the patient themselves if they want to have the conversation, but it can't be pretty to be listening to that, and they want to be protective of, of that patient's emotional state. If the patient has already begun to display some paranoia, which can sometimes be a feature relatively early on, they don't want to incite that. They live their life trying to avoid that landmine. And so if they become part of a discussion about end-of-life and end-of-life choices, they can then become um, the target of some of that paranoia, which uh, makes life extraordinarily difficult. There are issues that also speak not only to a patient or a caregiver a willingness to engage in the conversation, but also their capacity to truly reflect what the patient would have wanted with fidelity, the whole idea of how well do you do substituted judgment as a surrogate decision maker. There's a potential generational bias. There are some studies which suggest that spouses do a better job of predicting patient preference than uh, adult children because of the generational gap between them. There's an influence, as I think many people have spoken to, of guilt, which is a very complex thing, and as Dr. Santuli reflected, oftentimes leads to caregivers or surrogate decision makers making more aggressive choices. 
I think it also speaks to a therapeutic Im imperative, sort of uh, parenthetically. We heard before about, I think really poignantly at the break in the questions, about how hard it is to push against a system to try and ask for comfort-oriented care when the system seems to be encouraging you to, uh, to continue to engage in aggressive interventions. And so it's that the almost ubiquitous nature of that guilt really is a message to clinicians to take on more responsibility in making recommendations that are truly consistent with what the disease allows. Separate from guilt, there's a whole issue of depersonalization. When patients with Alzheimer's progress, they become less and less recognizable as the person who was the object of love. And it can sometimes be true that a very objective relationship uh, develops where they are just that thing in the bed that you have to care for, and you really lose touch with who they were and what they would have wanted as you become, as caregiver, profoundly impacted by both the stress of caregiving and the stress of grief. And caregiver stress and burnout and that terrible anticipatory grief that Dr. Santorly talked about really just in general clouds your ability to function at the highest level of cognitive ability and ability to abstract, which is really what's required in walking through these nuances. So it is a really difficult job on your best day, and this is by no means your best day. And lastly, there are cultural and religious influences regarding nutrition and regarding the morality of uh, limiting treatment interventions that may really interfere with a clear-headed, um, faithful enactment of the patient's expressed wish or value. So let's look at the specific examples, and these are largely qualitative studies that reflect back what the actual caregiver experience is. Consistently, both in the US and in Europe, higher caregiver burden correlates with the choice of more aggressive treatment, exactly as Dr. Santulli alluded to. Choices to treat are associated with a higher degree of satisfaction than choices not to treat the guilt and the regret and the countercultural influence of what you're actually doing, that road not taken, which could have been really good maybe, uh, is really hard to live with. Caregivers, I think as was said here, um, oftentimes express conflict between what they feel the patient would have wanted and what they believe to be in best interest. And sometimes that's really complex because patients with early dementia who do have decisional capacity very commonly will choose more aggressive treatments than perhaps they would have when they didn't have any cognitive impairment or weren't entertaining this, or certainly of uh, age-matched um, uh, control peers who don't have cognitive impairment. And so uh, caregivers are faced with, well, do I listen to what he said now? He kind of said he wanted one of each, but that's not really what he would have wanted before. But he said it now, and I don't really think, I don't see a lot of percentage in it, but maybe I'm wrong. It's really a hard quagmire to live in. The factors that are associated with lack of decision preparedness and some of that decisional conflict and decisional regret are the pervasive sense of guilt, particularly a sense of failure when patients are institutionalized. If I was a loving daughter, I would have given you your wish to be cared for, to age in place, to die in your home, it is my personal failure that I can't deliver that. When in fact, as we've heard, it's an undoable task and it's a system failure that we can't allow provision for that. The issue of depersonalization so that you are no longer really even seeing the patient as the person that they were, so you can't reflect what their wishes would have been. 
And again, that whole issue of a generational disconnect as you try and predict what someone would have wanted if, in fact, you don't have first-hand access to that information. So, help us out and teach us how to do this. So you guys have in your packets this. It says at the top, Goals of Care Conversations and Dementia Roadmap. And I'm going to give you just a quick overview of, of this framework. And um, by no means is this something that you would follow step by step. A conversation is a fluid, organic thing. But that you might try to touch on each of these steps. So taking a look at the first step, consider the first step sort of to be setting the stage. You're going to be um, introducing the topic, revisiting any past conversations that have been had, making sure that the right people are in the room to help make the right decision and that the right amount of detail is conveyed. Looking at the sec second step, that's the heart of the conversation. This is where you're going to have a give and take. You're going to have the patient, you're going to be listening from the patient what, who they are, what they value, what they hope for, and what they worry about, while at the same time providing a real-life correction, balancing it with realistic medical possibilities and limitations. So it's not going to be they tell you everything and then you slam them with a bunch of reality. It's going to be a back and forth, a dance. As a result of that dance, you're then going to be able to move to the third stage, which is providing a recommendation, a crystallization of what's been said, which incorporates the realistic medical outcomes um, in terms of the patient's, pa patient's values and goals. So what you've heard, you're going to translate into what's actually medically possible. And you're going to try to use the patient's language and feed it back to them so that they feel heard and they feel that you've incorporated who they are. So let's um, move on to the next step here. And we're going to do a thought exercise to demonstrate how intuitive this framework is. It probably seems like a lot on the page, but I think it's going to make sense to you guys. So let's imagine that you and Sharona are going to buy a house together. And she decides she's going to start with an internet search. And she finds this property. <laughs> she loves it. She's like, come on, let's buy it. Come on, this is the perfect place for us. So she's sold. But think about what hopes you might have about this house and concerns you might have about just kind of jumping right in. Do a little gut check. So before making a big decision, you're probably going to want to consider whether the house fits you as a person and whether it sort of suits your personal values. Is this the right house for me? I... <laughs> so one big thing might be the neighborhood. Does this look like what you're looking for? Does that look like a good neighborhood? It's a war zone around the house? Um, but it might not work for you, but what if it does work for Sharona? What if she really does want to live here? I did grow up in the Bronx. See? <laughs> so this looks like home. So in the same way, a patient might choose heroic measures like the ICU at the end of life. Your job isn't to decide for Sharona. It's to match her values and goals to what's medically available and appropriate. So Sharona now went internet shopping again, and she's found an even better place. She promises you this is the right one. This is it. And the neighborhood's perfect. She's given up. She doesn't need to live in the Bronx. It's fine. This is a really quiet place. It'll, it'll suit you. But what else are you concerned about? What other kind of 
things are, are important variables when you're thinking about a big investment like a house. <laughs> I was going to clean it, sure. So, uh-oh. <laughs> you need to think about the potential investment you're going to be putting into this house. The cost, the time for repairs, whether it can be adequately remodeled before you decide to buy it, right? And in the same way, patients and surrogates need to be educated about what's medically possible, what outcomes are likely, and where, this, where the patient is in the disease trajectory. All right, so you're, you've had it with doing this alone. Sharona is driving you crazy. You guys need some guidance. You need a realtor, right? Just as your patients need a well-versed clinician. You need to find somebody you can trust, though, somebody who cares about you, who's knowledgeable about you and the market. Sharona, she's, she's kind of come down a little bit, so she wants a quiet neighborhood, okay, recently renovated, and she's got $200,000 to spend. She's depending on that realtor to tell her whether that's feasible, whether she's going to find the house she's looking for. And in the medical world, patients and surrogates need to know whether what they're hoping for is possible. And if not, they need help identifying an achievable outcome. So we've been talking throughout about some of the core skills. And I'll let Sharana quickly review them before we move on to a role play. So we're going to look at some of the elements of these skills as we go through this role play exercise. I just wanted to summarize and articulate sort of the crystallized core objectives of a conversation like this. First, you need to establish patient context and establish therapeutic alliance. And the reason those are grouped together is very often just the process of establishing patient context, asking about preferences and values and life history and all of the biography that critically influences how you're going to handle the biology establishes therapeutic alliance. You care about me. You're knowledgeable about me. Your recommendations will be informed by what I think is best for me. And that's a crucial key step. Next, um, and what I've listed there, by the way, are just some of the ways that you begin to get at some of the questions that inform uh, that articulation of patient preference. So taking a values history as you look back over your life, what are the things that have been important? What are the things that have been sources of meaning, of pleasure, of engagement? What are known prior wishes about specific interventions? Because this whole end of life thing has become a popular phenomenon and people sometimes have very clear sense of preferences around CPR, around mechanical ventilation, around artificial and probably what's most universally accessible to you are what are the minimum threshold values for quality of life? So if you were a marathoner, could you live with being able to walk a mile? Okay, a mile is not preferred, but it's okay. How about six blocks? How about a block? How about being homebound? And then once you've gotten a fleshed out sense of the patient context, and you understand how to help them make the best decisions that are individually tailored to who they are and what they want to achieve and what they want to avoid, you can then begin to flesh out an understanding of what's possible. What is this disease actually going to look like? And given where you are, what would likely be the outcome for you relative to the values that you've just told me about if we were to make this particular treatment choice? And I think the critical piece here is that 
this has to be um, a step that precedes actually considering the diagnostic or the therapeutic options in front of you. If you don't know what's achievable, you can't speak to what's preferred. That puts you at risk of uh, fixing your hopes on a whole lot of things that you're never going to have. So always what's desired has to be framed by an intimate knowledge of what's achievable. And then comes the third step in which all of that therapeutic alliance plays out, in which if you're doing your job right, hopefully you are giving some form of recommendation because that's a lot of the way in which you de-escalate the guilt. You make it okay to think about less aggressive choices as best care. And what you're really doing is reflecting back the synthesis of those first two steps. Who are you? What do you value? What are you hoping for? What do you want to avoid? What is the decision in front of us and what's achievable? What's the best compromise choice among the choices that we have that gets you the most of what you're hoping for and helps you to avoid the things that you most fear? And that's really the basis of the therapeutic conversation that gets played out many times over the course of the trajectory of an advancing disease. So what's going to happen next is we're going to demonstrate an emotionally intense decision-making conversation because emotion is some of what we all most fear. So we're going to give you guys a chance to watch how Sharona manages the affect of this surrogate decision-maker. After the encounter, we're going to have a little time to debrief as a large group about what you observed. You have um, some note pages in your folders. And as you watch, you could, if you look at the back of this, there's actually some examples of ways to respond to emotion. You can pay attention and see if she uses any of these. Um, but you can also pay attention to what language you use, write down language that you liked. Pay attention to what choices you might have made at different stages. Oh, actually, I think I would have said X here and not what Sharona said. And we'll debrief about it a bit afterwards, okay? So I'm going to quickly read through the clinician information that Sharona has. So Betty Smith is a 75-year-old widow who's a resident in the facility where you work. She has one daughter named Karen who is an attorney and lives in New York City. Betty has lived in your facility for 12 months since she suffered a fall at home and fractured her hip. She was not a candidate for surgery because of severe COPD, so the hip was pinned and she's been bedbound ever since. She also has moderately severe dementia. When she was admitted, she had short-term memory loss, but in recent months, She's been oriented to self only. This past week, staff reported that she's losing weight and refusing to eat even when she's hand-fed. She is without evidence of systemic infection and has no physical complaints. On a weekend afternoon, you're notified that her daughter, Karen, is visiting and would like to speak to someone from the medical staff. You're told that she's upset and is asking about feeding tubes. The doctor has already left for the day and hasn't responded to your page yet when the daughter appears at the nursing station and says, can someone please talk with me? She's tearful. Sharona's coming in to speak with her. Hi. Dr. Sachs. Hi. I heard you had some questions. Oh, I'm so upset. I don't know what's happening to my mother. She looks like a concentration camp victim. She just looks so horrible compared to the last time I was here. And it looks like she's not eating. They say she's not eating. Can, can they do something? There's some way you can get her to eat. Can they feed her or put some kind of tubes or something? I don't know. She just looks horrible, and I just hate seeing her this way. Yeah. It's a big shock. She's changed a lot. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't been here in a while. Yeah. 
And I know I probably shouldn't come more, but it's really hard to get away. Oh, I hate seeing her like this. I think there's some stuff that I want to talk with you about because I suspect I can answer a lot of the questions that you were asking about what's happening yeah. and what we can do about it. I think for us to make smart decisions, I really need to know a lot more about your mom and about you and how we can think together about what's best. Can you help me? I guess, yeah. Yeah, tell me a little bit about your mom before she got sick. Well, she was a single mom. My dad died when I was like 12. And it was just me and her all that time. She worked so hard to make things possible for me. She pushed me to go to a really good school and then she helped me pay for law school and you know, I had a really good job and I have a daughter so it's sort of the same and now I'm divorced so I sort of see myself following the example that she set out for me when I was young. She's just been such a rock in my life and I hate just seeing this happen to her, it's really hard. It's scary and I guess I, I feel like I should be able to come up more but it's really hard to get away from work and you know I'm divorced so I have my daughter to care for. I finally got my, my ex-husband to take her for the weekend so I could come up and I'm just shocked at how much change there's been since the last time I was here. So it sounds like your mom was extraordinary. She was. And it sounds like she gave you a lot of good training in how to be a rock. I hope so. I don't know if I can be as strong as she was. Well, from what you described, I think she trains you well. And I think the question that we sort of have to think about is, what does being a rock look like at this phase in your mom's life? And how do we take the best care of her? Yeah, I, I want to have the best for her. Yeah. It sounds like you're really scared when you see her so thin. Yeah, I, I can't imagine how she can carry on the way she looks. She's just emaciated and it's yeah. hard to see. What do you think is happening? I guess maybe she can't physically eat anymore, like feed herself, and maybe they don't have time to take care of her or to feed her properly, I don't know. So you worry that it's sort of inattention? I guess. The exact opposite of what she gave you, right. and right. you want for her yes. what she gave Yes. Yeah. I'm wondering, when your mom first came here, I know that she was pretty early in the course of her dementia. Yeah, she and had now, a fall, yeah. so she couldn't be at home anymore. Yeah. And if I'm remembering right and looking at her records, it looked like she was having some spotty problems with her memory, but that was pretty much it. It interfered with her ability to sort of watch out for herself. Yeah, yeah. I would say that's right. I'm wondering if at that time we ever really talked with you about what to expect as the disease of dementia progresses. No, I don't think anybody ever did. Would it be useful for us to talk about that now? Because I suspect that's some of what we're seeing. Oh, really? Yeah, I guess. It's kind of 
I guess. <laughs> Hard. Yeah. You scared about what I'm going to say? Yeah. A little bit. I think the hardest thing to understand about dementia is that it's sort of brain failure. And everyone knows what it looks like when another organ fails, right? When you have heart failure, your feet swell up, you get weaker over time, maybe you get shorter breath, and then your heart gives out. And that's kind of easy to understand. Right. Your brain does so many different things that it's really hard to think about all the things that are consequences of brain failure. I know you've lived with one already, right? That's the lack of her memory. Right. Her ability. Ability. She didn't even really know who I was all the time. So it came in and out, and that was disconcerting. More than disconcerting, it's awful. And not being able to come because you are doing exactly as she trained you to do, being a rock for everybody, is awful. But what you did do is put her in a place where people understand her disease and can help you think about how to best care for her. Okay. I think that one of the other brain functions that is critical over time is that your brain directs your body to do a lot of complex tasks. One of them is to swallow. And it takes a whole bunch of muscles working in coordination with each other to swallow effectively. You don't think about it, right? Because it's automatic when your brain works well. That goes away when your brain doesn't. So she can't swallow? She can't swallow effectively. It tends to go down the wrong pipe more often than not. That's been a problem. The other thing that we've seen, and this is a very natural part of her disease as well, is she's kind of losing interest in food. Her thoughts are not really accessible to us, but they're engaged elsewhere. And so what we have done so far is to make food that's the easiest for her to be able to swallow effectively available to her and to give it to her when she wants it, but to not force it when she doesn't. So so that's why she's so thin. That's why she's so thin. Because you don't want to force it, that would be awful. Well, it sounds like she was a pretty independent lady and she didn't really like to be forced into much. No, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) It also sounds to me like, if we were to do something like force her, it would have to be because we had a pretty good, compelling reason to believe that it would be helpful to her. And I don't have that compelling reason. So it won't help her to put on some weight at this point, to just have more substance to her body? Well, I actually think that there's a good chance that it might not help her some weight. But if she were to put on some weight, I guess we'd have to think about that. Because when you're a doctor and you're thinking about starting a treatment, you always have to understand what is it that I'm trying to achieve with that treatment. And if we were to artificially introduce nutrition into her body, it would be a medical treatment. And we'd have to think about what are we trying to achieve. And when I listen to you, it sounds like Achieving weight gain 
not really something that is going to achieve an objective that you want. Let me tell you what I heard to make sure I have it right. I heard that what you want for your mom is loving care, meticulous, attentive care like she gave to you when you were a child. Because your life, as she wants you to live it, means that you are taking care of a lot of other people and can't be here to directly care for her. You want her cared for exactly as you would. And what that means is with love and with attention and with allowing her to be who she is and the best of who she is, as she did for you. Yes, that's right. When I look at her place in her disease, when I see the progression of her memory loss, of the interruption of her thinking, and now of the interruption of both her interest in food and her ability to tolerate food and to swallow, I think that she is near the end of her life. hard to hear. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I guess I didn't realize that it was so close. But I think she wouldn't want to continue like this. It's not what she would want. But as long as she can be comfortable I guess that's the best we can do now. I think that is the best care that she can get. Do you have a sense of what that looks like or what you'd like it to look like? I don't know. I don't really know what to say. Is it okay if I help you out with some thoughts about that? Please. My sense is that we can't control the fact of your mom's dying but we sure can control the quality of it. For me, what that means is helping her to be in a place where she's familiar with the folks around her, keeping her physically comfortable, and not really burdening her with things that can't help her. Continuing to feed her as she wants, if she wants, as long as it doesn't cause undue discomfort. We can certainly help her with that. I think the price of that over time might be that she's sleepy. Is that okay? Yeah, that's probably good. And we'll just let her pass peacefully and naturally in this place. Do you know how long this will be? I don't know with precision. I expect that we're really talking about weeks or months.
to do what these guys did, so kudos. So let's have some quick rapid-fire observations about, we're going to do a little more in-depth, but I just want to have some quick shout-outs about what struck you about this encounter, what was surprising or striking, just shout them out. I level and held her hand, and boy, could you be my doctor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what else? Brain failure. Brain failure, yeah. Anything else? Intimacy, yeah. Tell me about your mother. And then reading it back, she asked permission. She showed care. She showed care. Very affirming. And very affirming. Okay, that's a lovely. Yes. And she listened. She listened as much as she could. Took her time. Thank you, guys. This gives me, it's a beautiful actual word picture of what this encounter was like and what went so well. So, what affect did Nancy demonstrate? How'd she feel? Guilt, fear, sadness, burden of responsibility, the unknown. Okay. So how did Sharona handle it? She was empathetic. She was very validating. She talked about all the things that Nancy was doing right, putting her mom in this facility. No criticism. She named the emotion, didn't she? Yeah. What else? She gave her space, right? And after Sharona would, would give her a lot of information, she'd sit with it. She'd give some silence, let Nancy process before she was ready to move on, right? What else? Helped make this go well. 
No one has ever accused Sharona. <laughs> <laughs> so, what was the give and take part like? You know, we talked about that little section where there's the dance and finding out who the patient is and then providing education. How did she pace that? So, yeah, one of the things Sharona talked about is there can be a cognitive um, blunting if there's so much emotion. So, she really took it slow. And what I saw Nancy do a lot was Nancy told Sharona when she was ready to go on. She'd ask a follow-up question. She'd say, so, so does this mean that my mom's dying? And then Sharona could go on. But Sharona waited for that invitation before she plunged ahead. to clarify that I had, what was it then that was driving the difference? So when you choose that, when you think about putting a feeding tube in your mom, what are you hoping for? And then the branching logic that goes from there is, if it is an unrealistic hope, you circle back again with a restatement of information, understanding that people who are under emotional stress may not be thinking in a linear cognitive way and may have just heard, not heard that first pass of information. If it's truly a difference of belief, I don't trust you, or I'm from you know, Missouri, I gotta see it myself, then you negotiate the framework of a time-limited trial. So it sounds like you're hoping that if your mom gets nutrition, she'll gain some weight, and in gaining weight, she'll be stronger, and in being stronger, she'll think differently. I expect that if that were to happen, it would happen over the course of about six weeks. We can go ahead and put the feeding tube in, or we can think about a temporary feeding tube if you're in a facility where that's an option. We can introduce nutrition, and let's look again, because I want what you want. I'm worried that it may not be possible, but we can certainly try because I know that this treatment, and it's really important to identify it as a treatment which has a goal, I know that this treatment has some side effects. I want us to be making very sure that it's achieving what we want. So let's check back with each other in six weeks. So what's most therapeutic here is building an alliance, and that the alliance comes first, above what you think is the right thing to do, that you are gonna make sure that there is trust here because you can work with trust. You can't work if you don't burn bridges now. So um, I'm very conscious that there's another fabulous lecture coming up next. It would be wonderful to keep going. But those of you that are going to be doing the simulated um, role plays with us this afternoon will have more opportunity to do some of this. So thank you both for your wonderful activity.